0: Private equity pioneer David Rubenstein launched a firm some three decades ago that grew into an investing giant and transformed finance along the way. Before that, he rose to prominence as a political star, earning a job in the White House as an advisor to Jimmy Carter at just 27 years old. In the late 1980s, he took a leap into private equity co-founding a $5 million firm called Carlyle Group that now manages more than $200 billion in assets and runs offices on six continents. In this episode of Influencers, Rubenstein joins me to discuss whether the stock market can keep climbing, who will win the presidential election, and why private equity gets a bad rap. Hello, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guests, David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, television host and author of the upcoming book, How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders and Game Changers. David, nice to see you. My pleasure, thank you very much for having me. So, a lot of ground to cover here. Uh, let's talk about the economy first. You said recently that you thought the US would be in a recession for quite a while.
1: Why do you think that, and what will the recovery look like? Well, what I should have said to be more careful in my describing it is technically, we're out of the recession in this sense. A recession is when you are going down, and when we're, we're now coming up. So we're, we're better than we were, but we are not likely to be back to where we were before this recession hit uh, a few months ago, probably for a few years. In other words, typically when you go into a recession, it takes three years plus to get out of the recession and get back to the level of the economy you had before. I think most economists agree that today it will probably take us about three years to get back to the level of GDP that we had before we went into this recession. Now, I say we're coming out of the recession now because we're beginning to see economic growth from the low points of April, but we're still below where we were before the recession hit a few months ago.
0: What do you make of this crazy stock market, though, David? And does it seem like a big disconnect to you and maybe a bubble, perhaps even?
1: Most of the great investors that I've talked to myself, interviewed over the last couple of weeks or so, have the same kind of view that you do. Uh, which is that the stock market seems to be disconnected from the economy. The economy is one where it's lower growth than we had before. It is coming out of a recession. It is one where that we have, depending on how you measure, 20 to 30 million people unemployed. And in that kind of situation, um, you shouldn't expect the stock market to be running up to these he- these highs. But I think many people are thinking we will come out. And also, the stock market is a forward indicator, and it's indicating maybe a year from now that some of these numbers will be justified. But right now, I do think that there's going to be a lot of gyrations between now and a year from now. And I think it's a fool's errand to go into the market now thinking that it's uh, a bottom and you're going to go up from here. I think there's going to be a lot of ups and downs.
0: Anything change any sectors that are sort of attractive to you, given what's happened in the economy that would make you want to invest in them at this point?
1: Well, technology is an area where clearly there's going to be more growth. Uh, What we've learned through COVID-19 is that technology is dominant in the way we communicate with each other and the way we're now running our companies. And so companies that can take advantage of of the ability of people to communicate as Zoom or other kinds of equivalents of Zoom are doing are going to do quite well. Um, uh, Telehealth is obviously going to do quite well. Things like that that really use technology that we've developed but really hadn't put to the fore of of all of our activity. I will say that most of the companies that are operating today and are doing reasonably well are operating with people at home and without all their workforce back in the office. And I think that's going to continue for quite some time. I think it's unlikely that either all these employees will come back ever to work in their office or all all of them will actually be retained. Because I do think you'll see layoffs at some point down the road from some of these uh, companies.
0: The Wall Street Journal recently reported, David, that private equity M&A fell in the first half of the year. What is the reason for that? And what does that say about the broader economy?
1: When they had the Great uh, Recession about 10 years ago, the lessons that private equity took were make certain that what you own is okay before you go buy anything else. So what people were doing as soon as this recession hit is making certain that the companies we already own had sufficient cash to operate, that they'd called down at credit credit lines if necessary, that they were shored up that if necessary, more equity was put in, if necessary, debt was bought back, perhaps at a discount. And so that's what people have been doing. Now, I think it's beginning to pick up in our own case, we're we're fairly active now, as other people are in the private equity world. So the activity is there because the financing market's there, and the IPO market is actually there. Amazingly, although the economy is not doing so well, generally, you have a good financing market, the debt market is pretty robust, and the IPO market actually exists as well. You said that the world has changed
0: forever. Um, what are sort of the biggest changes that you see, and how do companies need to adjust to take advantage of that or at least um, deal with them?
1: Well, people now recognize that you don't have to have all your people uh, at your, uh, in offices. So a lot of people are now going to work remotely in the future. Some people may work remotely five days a week. Some people may do it three days a week. I don't think people will feel they need to travel quite as much I was fairly famous for traveling all over the world, uh, 240 days a year, I'm on a plane. And I'm wondering now, why did I need to do all that? I would often go to Singapore for a meeting and then you know come back in a, in a day or so or go to Abu Dhabi for a, a meeting for a day or so and then come back. In hindsight, maybe that wasn't so smart, a uh, good use of time, though obviously at the time I thought it was. I think a lot of people in the future will probably not travel quite as much. I think people in the future will spend more time worrying about their health, I think people in the future will spend more time uh, worrying about making sure they have adequate cash to deal with uh, emergency needs. I think people in the future are going to try to change supply chains so that we're not as dependent in the United States on China for certain types of products. I think you'll see a lot of changes like that. And also, one thing is, I think people my age, I'm now 70, are thinking more and more about their own uh, you know, mortality, because I used to think I'm an aging baby boomer, 70 years old, what's, what's the big deal? I could live to be 85, 90, what's a, no problem. But now people realize if you get COVID-19 at the age of 70, your chance of surviving that might not be so wonderful. So a lot of people are being much more careful, and they're also trying to complete their bucket list. I'm trying to race through things now to make sure I get certain things done, because if I get COVID for some reason I can't prevent, I want to make sure I've gotten a lot of things done that I, you know, we're putting off. What are some of those things, David? Well, I wanted to have my own uh, TV show on Yahoo Finance. That was number one. But, uh, you know, that, that position's already taken. So I'm looking at other things. But I, I'm trying to finish a few books. I, I wanted to, uh, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to give away large amounts of my money. And I, I've done a fair amount of that, but I've still got some more to give away. And I wanted to, you know, I'm a nonprofit, I'm the chair of a number of nonprofit organizations. I wanted to finish some things that we have uh, underway there. Um, but generally, I also want to make sure my children are happily launched into adulthood. They're all adults now, and I'll do what I can to make sure that they have, you know, a reasonable chance of having a happy and healthy life.
0: Interesting. I want to loop back to that philanthropy uh, point that you just made. But first, I want to ask you about your assessment of the federal government's response to the pandemic's economic fallout.
1: Well, I would say the response of the U.S. government to the economic effect of the pandemic, I think, has been pretty good with one caveat that I'll mention. I think the Federal Reserve and Jay, and I should say that, obviously, Jay Powell used to work at Carlisle, so I do know him and I have a high regard for him. I I think he's done everything you could possibly do. Um, I don't think he could have done any more and he moved quickly. I think the Congress, despite the dysfunction that we often see in Congress, the Congress did pass legislation that I think was very good. I think they'll pass one more bill in a couple of weeks or so, maybe for another trillion dollars. What's a trillion here or there, but another trillion dollars. Um, the downside is that this can't keep going on forever. We just don't have unlimited amounts of money, so we can't keep supporting the economy forever with more and more bailouts. And the other related caveat is that, and that's because of this point, um, we have too much debt. We have $26 trillion of federal debt. We have uh, you a know, monthly debt deficit this past month of 850. trillion. Uh, billion dollars. We, We're going to have an annual deficit this year of about probably four trillion dollars. We can't keep running up these debts and deficits without paying the price. Uh, because interest rates are so low, it's been inexpensive to do this. But at some point when interest rates come back, I do think that we got to struggle with this. And I hope the new administration, whoever it is, if Trump is reelected or Biden is reelected, will do something like a Bowles-Simpson commission, because while Bowles-Simpson didn't work, in other words, it came up with pretty good ideas, but they couldn't politically get it done, I do think we're going to have to do something at the beginning of administration to address the debt problems we have and the deficit and the entitlement programs, because we don't do that. Your children and my children and our great-grandchildren are just not going to, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to have real problems paying off this debt, and it's going to really hurt the economy. It's funny. You're the second person
0: this week who's mentioned Simpson-Bowles to me. That's maybe they're coming back in the style, or at least that that thinking, it's might not be a bad thing.
1: You know, think about Simpson-Bowles. Obviously, there are two respected people, Democrat and Republican. They came together, and it was a bipartisan task force, a lot of very good ideas. But at the time, it was so politically controversial that President Obama, who appointed them, wouldn't even meet with them to hear the actual proposals. He never actually met with them, and it didn't go anywhere. It's unfortunate. But I do think we've got to do something, and you have to do it at the beginning of an administration. Most major legislation is passed at the beginning of an administration, and that's when the, the, the president has the goodwill to get some of this done.
0: What do you think about the presidential race in terms of who's going to win, David? Can you handicap it for us?
1: Well, I've been wrong almost every time I've predicted. So um, I thought Hillary Clinton would win. I thought President Muskie would win. I thought uh, Jimmy Carter would get reelected. Um, so I'm always wrong. I thought Al Gore would be president. So I'm always wrong. So I could tell you what I think, but you should then say, well, the opposite is going to occur. Clearly, uh, President Trump has a, a challenge now because... Presidents don't usually get reelected when the economy is in bad shape. When the economy is not good, uh, you have people like Jimmy Carter not getting reelected, George Herbert Walker Bush not getting reelected, Gerald Ford not getting reelected. So the economy is not as good as it once was. And then you have a whole variety of other issues you're familiar with that, with President Trump that some people, uh, you know, comment on regularly. So I would say it's an uphill battle. On the other hand, four months ago we would have thought Trump is going to get reelected. Four months ago you would say economy is pretty good. And uh, despite some challenges, uh, he probably can get reelected. Now, it looks like he has a difficult time getting reelected. But, you know, four months from now or, you know, by the time that November comes around, things could change.
0: So um, you mentioned stimulus and maybe another trillion is needed or so. Exactly how should those monies be distributed? Um, Another round of checks, more unemployment insurance, bonuses to people to go back
1: to work. What's your thinking there? I think it's not likely that we're going to reinvent the wheel um, in the next program. I think they're going to take the things that work reasonably well and just give more money to it. So I suspect um, we will probably have more uh, of the uh, kind of uh, business loans. There'll be some more unemployment insurance. Um, Those are the things that seem to have worked reasonably well. Um, Some of the things that are necessary are probably not necessarily going to get done because they're harder to get done, which is direct aid to the states, direct aid to school districts, direct aid to nonprofits, uh, all of which have suffered during this uh, situation. But I suspect we'll probably see much of what we already have had. The only issue that I think is going to be debated at, at the end and won't get resolved easily is should there be liability insurance for employers that bring people back to work or for other uh, kind of entities are universities or others? Uh, that would probably be very difficult to get passed in any meaningful way. But that's one of the big issues that will have to be fought, which is to what extent there is liability protection.
0: And what about hardship pay for employees who are on the front lines, just at grocery stores and Stop and Shop and Amazon uh, have had that? They've um, discontinued it. Do you think that's a good idea?
1: I, I, I think it's a good idea. It's deserved. Whether they'll continue or not, I don't know. I don't think the federal government will put in a money for that kind of thing. But I think uh, for the employers that did it, I think it was a good thing. And it, it, it kind of bonded their employees. But I think it's it's also expensive, so I don't know to what extent they'll continue to do it. The big problem we have right now in the economy, as I see it, is that you have two ships passing in the night. We've had enough quarantining and, and self-isolating. People are anxious to get back to normal life. On the other hand, we're seeing an outbreak in, in many southern states and, and west coast, California. And so while there's a desire to reopen, we also see the consequences of reopening. Uh, and so it's a, it's a big problem, and I don't know that there's any easy answer because I suspect things will reopen, but I suspect we're just gonna to be tolerating more deaths than we normally would ever do. You know, there's a Hannah Arendt, who is a famous journalist um, who went and covered the Eichmann trial in the early 1960s in Israel. And she used the phrase banality of evil, which is to say that the Nazis who were working on this, like, evil was so common that it just became uh, commonly accepted. And it became uh, almost something not to even talk about. Here, we are now in the, in the, in the verge of having banality of death in the sense that uh, we are seeing so much death that it's almost acceptable that have a certain level of death. And therefore, I think people are going to go back to work and tolerate 1,000 people dying a day. Now, think about it. We've now had about 132, 133,000 Americans killed. That's a staggering amount. We had 3,000 killed in the, in the World Trade Center. We had about 58,000 killed in Vietnam, about 5,000 in uh, in Iraq, 3,000 or so in Afghanistan. These are staggering numbers. 110,000 in World War One, and now we're well above each of those numbers. and And we're now almost accepting it. When you hear a thousand people died a week anymore, you don't get as excited as you did uh, a while ago. And so I just think people are going to are, are unfortunately going to accept this, and we're going to go back to work. And I just think it's it's going to have a lot of health consequences that we're, we're going to live with and, and just accept as normal.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a sad state of affairs if that, in fact, is normal. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, PPP loans and private equity a little bit, shifting gears right. here. Um, uh, a couple of companies like Five Guys and TGI Fridays received PPP loans and were criticized for that. Um, they were private equity-backed companies. Should those companies have received uh, money that way, and should they give back the loans?
1: Well, each company, first of all, uh, Congress passes a law, and they say sometimes, well, we pass a law, but we really didn't mean it. For example, um, under the first uh, CARES Act, universities were supposed to be given a certain amount of money. Um, And under that formula, Harvard was given some money. Harvard never actually got the money, but uh, the White House got upset that Harvard was going to get some money, so Harvard said, we're not even going to interest interested in taking it. Well, Harvard hadn't done anything. A lot of universities had given up the money. They, they, the Congress passed a law. So in the same uh, way, you know, Congress passed a law that said some of these companies could take this money. Um, then they said, well, we didn't really mean it. Well, what is an employer supposed to do, a company supposed to do? So as a general rule of thumb, the, go- the goal should be keep a people working. And if a company is owned by a public, is a public company, and it's, and needs help, or it's a privately owned company, owned by a family, or owned by a private equity firm, it shouldn't make a difference who the owner is, wh- wh- whether the employees are going to get the help or not. But obviously, that's politically difficult to do. Private equity firms are seen as wealthy, and they should take care of, of their employees in some other way. So um, most of the uh, large private equity firms that I'm familiar with chose not to take money, even if they were legally entitled to it for their companies because of the criticism that would arise. And in fact, I, I think some of the legislation didn't let some of the private equity firms take it. For the ones you mentioned, I'm not familiar with the details, but I, you know, I, I suspect these people got the loans are complying with the law, and if they didn't comply with the law, then they'll have to give it back. But I, I think the law allowed it, and so what are you supposed to do if you're an employer and you have employees who are going to be laid off, are you supposed to say, I'm not going to take the money I'm allowed to under the law?
0: Right. David, you're pretty self-aware about this notion that private equity is the bad guy in the economy or one of the bad guys. Um, I think Carlyle did Hertz at one point, which is now in bankruptcy. How, how do you respond to someone who comes up to you at a cocktail party and said, you, you're one of those bad private equity guys?
1: As a general rule of thumb, people don't come up to me at cocktail parties and, and say bad things. They usually do it behind your back. But as a general rule of thumb, I would say... Uh, Throughout history, people that make a lot of money and private equity firms have been successful for their investors and they've made a fair amount of money, people don't love them. Uh, people who make money in technology, people don't love them. People often resent or are jealous of them. And particularly if you flash your money and you do things with it that make you look like you're insensitive to size of problems, um, you, you, you have some resentment. I understand that. Private equity firms um, did some things 20, 30, 40 years ago that probably were not sensitive. They were less willing to worry about Um, offshore, offshoring of jobs, uh, environmental constraints, other kinds of ESG issues. Today, that's changed, and private equity firms are very sensitive to ESG issues, but we still have the image of 20 or 30 years ago that we're doing things that are uh, not, not, not good. In the end, who is investing with private equity? It's generally, largest investors are public pension funds. Policemen, firemen, teachers, their pension funds are investing, getting good returns. So, should we say to the private equity firms, don't take money from these pension funds, even though that if you get a good return from them, it's good for their pensions. So we're we're not, you know, we're not saying that we're uh, Mother Teresa. We are interested in making money, but we do it really on behalf of other people that can use the money. So I realize our image isn't perfect. Uh, You're never going to have a perfect image if you make a fair amount of money. Um, I do think that private equity is uh, doing much better ways of, uh, of giving back to society than maybe they did 40 years ago. And what happened to Hertz? Well, Hertz, uh, we sold our position probably 10 years ago, so I'm not up to speed on it. But I think generally uh, uh, they had just too much debt. But what happened is we had COVID-19. Um, how many cars have been rented since COVID-19 uh, happened? So anybody that is in the travel business, the cruise business, the, uh, the airline business, the car rental business, uh, those businesses have been uh, you know slaughtered. And as a result, um, it, it's a bit, bit of a problem. And I think it's going to take a while before you see this happening, this coming back. I, I had once thought that it would, um, that travel would come back in a reasonable time frame, a reasonable, but now I, 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 it's my view that it's gonna be much more complicated than I ever thought. I was probably wrong in thinking that it would come back at one point. I do think it's gonna take much longer time because people are learning now they don't need to travel as much. They are afraid of traveling until there's a vaccine and now looks like a vaccine's gonna take longer than we once thought. I think a vaccine, uh, when it comes out, won't be readily available to everybody. So I think it's going to take quite a while before you see recovering in car rental businesses, airline companies, cruise companies, hotels. It's going to be a bit of a challenge for them.
0: You recently started your Leadership Live series. You've been doing this for a while, I guess, actually. What are top executives saying right now, David, if you can sort of generalize? And how are they rethinking their strategy?
1: This is a series where I've been sitting in my home now, there's a home I've had in Bethesda, Maryland for 30 years and I've, I've spent more time in it in the last 30 days in the last 30 years because I'm, I'm here all the time now. Um, and I was interviewing CEOs in their homes and uh, basically asking them you know, how they're managing the companies. And to summarize it, most of the CEOs adapted pretty quickly as did their companies to the need to, to manage things remotely. The technology turned out to be readily available and I think most people uh, who are the CEOs have come away with these conclusions. Number one, <clears throat> we don't need to have all our people at work all the time. Number two, we might not need all the employees we once thought we did. Number three, technology is really, really important. and We can't put too much money into technology. And four, the health of our employees has to come first. And so worry about the health of your employees, then worry about the health and well-being of your customers. But I think most of the CEOs feel pretty comfortable that they've adapted reasonably well. But in the end, I think you're going to find office space will not be needed as much as before, people are not going to travel as much as before, and that we're going to feel fairly comfortable working two or three or four days a week at home remotely. Right. So
0: as someone who's studying leadership and talking to leaders, how would you assess uh, Trump's leadership amid the crisis?
1: Well, it's a challenge. You know, to think about, could anybody have managed this very well? You know, name all the presidents you can, you want to name. I don't think anybody's ever experienced something like this, a recession and a pandemic at the same time uh, at this magnitude. So it's a challenging situation. And I'm glad that I I am not at the White House now having to deal with it because it's a difficult situation for anybody. And there's no easy answers. There's no doubt. And and the the, the people running the other countries, have, have felt the same problem. I mean no, nobody running any country today has found this to be an easy thing to do.
0: Okay. Um, which candidate, which is President Trump and, and Biden presumably, would be better for the economy?
1: Well, it's hard to say um, because uh, you can argue the economy was very good under President Trump until pandemic. So you could argue he knows how to help manage an economy. on the other hand, economies have been good very often under Democratic leadership. And uh, I'd say, you know, Joe Biden it has a lot of people around him who are very good in knowledge and experience. So it's just really hard to say who would be better for the economy. You know, the American people um, don't really know that who's likely to be the better for the economy. I just, I think it's too early to say, I couldn't say yet.
0: Right. I know you've been very concerned about wealth and income inequality, David, in America. Right. And, and boy, it it You mentioned, I saw, that it's the worst it's been probably since the 1920s. been getting worse since the 1970s. How bad is it? What are the impacts on society, and how do we turn this thing around?
1: Well, if I knew how to turn it around, I would have gone to Iowa and then New Hampshire. Uh, It's not easy. No, but there's no easy answer. Uh, One of the problems we have is that we have an underclass in our society that might be a permanent underclass, maybe for discrimination reasons maybe for other kinds of uh, reasons beyond anybody's control. But let me give you an example. Today, in the United States, you have about 1.7 million people a year dropping out of high school. You have 14% of the population is functionally illiterate. They can't read past a fourth grade level. If people can't read, they're not likely to be productive members of society. You know, in fact, two thirds of the people in federal prisons are functionally illiterate and maybe being functionally illiterate led to their being uh, part of the criminal criminal system. So Um, There are three challenges. Challenge number one, income inequality. It's getting worse than it's ever been. Number two, social mobility. When I grew up in Baltimore, a blue collar family, I believed in the American dream and thought I could work my way to the top. And although I was Jewish, I recognized there was some discrimination. I thought I could probably work my way in the top. I believed in the American dream. Today, many people at the bottom do not believe in the American dream. They don't see there's mobility to the top by working hard for a lot of reasons. And third, there's something uh, uh, that is a new factor that I call the, the COVID-19 uh, crater, the COVID crater, which is this. If you are not technologically proficient today, you have no chance of rising above your, your, your basic uh, initial status in life because today everything is technology oriented. If you don't have internet access at home, how can you really perform the duties of a, of, of a worker if you have to work at home? Or how can you be a student? If your student, if your school isn't open, but you don't have internet access at home. So a lot of people are falling into this crater where they can't compete any longer because they don't have the technology access or the acumen. And as a result, I think the income inequality and social mobility may be exacerbated as a result of COVID. And we're not getting closer to solving that problem. We're we're moving further away from it.
0: David, you mentioned your philanthropy uh, previously. And The stuff you do concerning American history is high profile, but I know you said that's actually a small part of it. You're connected to some very high-profile nonprofit institutions as well. What is your thinking, generally speaking, when it comes to
1: philanthropy, and can you address some of this inequality that way? Well, philanthropy is something I've done because I feel I came from very modest circumstances. I want to give back to society that made it possible for me to, to do this. Um, And so I'm I'm an original signer of the Giving Pledge, and I'm committed to giving away the bulk of my money, and I've done a fair bit of it already. Um, Today, the nonprofits that I'm involved with, universities, hospitals, uh, cultural organizations, they're all suffering. Like, for example, the Kennedy Center, we we had to close the Kennedy Center. I've been the chair since 2010. And right now, we we have to effectively close it because nobody can come come to our performances, and we may not reopen for quite some time again. So though... What do you do with all the employees that no longer have jobs that are, that are there to be fi- to fulfilled? And um, What do you do with uh, you know all the other obligations you have? The same is true in universities. If students don't come back, they don't pay tuitions, how do universities survive in some way? So everybody's been affected. No, ad- no cultural organization, no nonprofit is immune from this. And it's going to take, I think, years to recover. And the business models of these organizations are going to have to change. There's going to have to be consolidations. There's going to have to be uh, uh, fewer... Uh, offerings in various places. There's going to have to be uh, a change in the way these people operate because we just don't have the revenue any longer to do the kind of things that uh, they they have done. And final question, David, what do you see as
0: your legacy? What what do you want the world to think of you after you're gone? Even
1: well, everybody wants people to think well of them, I guess. So I would prefer that people think better of me than worse of me. But I guess it would be that I. Uh, you know, got lucky in, in my financial career and gave back to society and left as my legacy three healthy, productive uh, uh, children. And then uh, some of the nonprofits that I was involved with are somewhat better than they would have been had I not been involved. That's all about all you can ask for.
0: All right. David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlisle Group and author of an upcoming book, How to Lead Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders and Game Changers. Thanks very much for your time, David. Andy,
1: thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. You've been
0: watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.